Hey, Dan. What up, guy? You're into this fintech. What's all this I'm hearing about Current? You're going to like this guy. Current is a fintech company that's completely disrupting traditional banking. Wait a second. Does that mean I don't have to drive to the bank anymore? <laughs> yeah, exactly. I manage an important part of my family's finances from one easy-to-use app. Well, I got to get this app, but where can I learn more? It's super easy. Just go to Current.com slash OK, O-K-A-Y, and download the app. That's Current.com slash OK. Current is a financial technology company, not a bank. Banking services provided by Choice Financial Group, member FDIC, and Cross River Bank, member FDIC. Welcome to OK Computer. I'm Dan Nathan. I'm joined by the illustrious, the illustrious Deirdre Bosa. That would be Debo. She is the host of CNBC's Tech Check. Debo, welcome back to OK Computer. You've been away a little bit, up in the mountains in the great white north. I came back just at the right time. The most exciting times that I have been a reporter in San Francisco is when the IPO window opens back up. So I'm cautiously optimistic that may happen. It's funny. It, it's been a really long drought, obviously. We have a NASDAQ that's rip-roaring. You were reporting last night on CNBC. It felt like all day yesterday about the ARM holdings. And, and this is SoftBank spinning this thing back out. They took it private, what, in 2016. It was valued in 2019 at levels much higher than where they expect this thing to come. So there was a, a, a filing that suggests that this deal is going going to come sooner so. And I did say it to you on Fast Money last night. I said, you're about to get a whole heck of a lot more busy, especially if this goes well. And we'll talk a little bit about some of the other companies that might come public. But if you talk about Windows opening up, I would say with a NASDAQ where it is, especially relative to where it was at this time in 2022, this makes a whole heck of a lot of a sense right now. It does. And let me tell you why I like IPO so much. As a tech reporter in San Francisco, I have access to a lot of these companies and I follow them when they're private. But public market investors, they don't have a lot of touch points, right? They're not investable until they go through that IPO. So a lot of it too is we don't have access to the financial information. We know that ARM is a particular case, a specific case, because it was actually once public, but we don't know what the heck it's done over the last eight or so years. So coming back to public markets, what has changed now versus 2016 when SoftBank took the thing private? I think that's a really exciting moment for investors, but it's also getting trickier and trickier because the amount of money in the private markets means that these companies can stay private for a lot longer. So are you getting them? Is the public getting them when its best growth days are behind them? Are they getting them at the peak, in other words? Or is this a really unique opportunity to hold what could be a mega cap or a really important chip company in the future? Yeah, no doubt. And you laid it out really succinctly last night on CNBC. Here's a company that they are not in the business of manufacturing um, semiconductors, right? They license these chip designs. It's a very high gross margin business. Okay, so that's something that I think probably attracted SoftBank back in the day and probably gave them a lot of confidence about their ability to basically bring this thing back out at once they retool it a little bit in the private markets at a higher multiple than, let's say, many semiconductor peers or so. The end market, this is the one thing that really caught my attention when you think about what percentage of their sales come from smartphones. And we know how bad the smartphone market is right now. We saw that guidance out of Qualcomm just a, a couple weeks ago and how poorly that stock is traded. That's one of the things I, I have to assume, and, and I think you hinted to it, they're going to have to tell a slightly different story away from smartphones to get the public really interested in this thing. Let me say first that Masa-san, he is the CEO and founder of SoftBank. 
it. He's had this really storied narrative as an investor, invested in Alibaba back at the dot-com bubble. Everything else went bust except for his $20 million investment in Alibaba, which would turn into over $100 billion. This has made him a legend and really given him the ability to go out and raise as much money as he has. But when we're talking arms specifically, Masasan is the king of the pivot. When he acquired this company back in 2016, he was talking about IoT, Internet of Things. He said ARM is going to be a humongous company because it plays into this trend. Guess what? It wasn't actually that big of a trend. So now what's the biggest trend? Starts with an A, ends with an I. (laughs) Now he's saying that ARM is going to be an AI company. And again, if you think about just a few years ago, he was talking about something completely else. He is going to have to make the case. And after looking at that F1 filing, which gave us all the information about the financials, about the business model, it's going to be difficult to make. It's interesting that what you say about Amasa-san is really interesting. Jensen Wang, the CEO of NVIDIA, is also a really good storyteller. And he's also a good pivoter, if you will. And you think about just the narratives, and you and I have talked about this on the pod. Over the last five or six years, they were at the forefront of crypto mining. They were at the forefront of gaming, AR, VR, data center. The list goes on and on. And here they are now, and they are a trillion-plus market cap company because they are really have the only supply of just these high-end graphics chips that are using to train these AI, generative AI models and large language models and and the like here. We have a great conversation with Dylan Patel. He is the chief analyst at Semi Analysis. We spend a lot of time um, talking about his estimates, what he's seen in the supply chain, what he sees from a competitive standpoint, what he also sees is like the forward guidance going forward, the direction of it into NVIDIA's quarter. That's Wednesday after the close. And you better get your popcorn out for that one, Debo, because that's going to be, there's probably going to be some fireworks there. Um, just curious, do you think based on people that you're speaking to already about this filing as it relates to ARM, are they going to be able to pivot? Are they going to be able to tell that story? Because right now, if you're exposed to PCs and smartphones and you're in the semiconductor space, it is not a great place to be right now. No. And Bernstein did an analysis. They didn't have the F1. So that's a big disclaimer. They didn't have those cold, hard numbers, but we know what ARM has been doing. Um, and they estimated its valuation around $40 billion. Masasan wants to take this thing public for somewhere between 60 to 70 billion. Fingers crossed, it's gonna be more than that. He never thinks small. So for him, I still remember the Uber days when Uber was gonna be valued north of 120 billion. It's, it's interesting because he's really deploying the same playbook he deployed for some, kind of the not so good IPOs of 2019, Uber, WeWork, which didn't even make it to public markets, just pours a ton of cash into them, bids up the valuation and expects the market to take that valuation as well. So he could be in for a bit of a rude awakening here. I don't know. I think a lot of the folks I talk to are skeptical that it will get that high. Because again, as you said, Dan, this is the company that derives most of its revenue from declining end markets like the smartphone. It still has to prove itself in artificial intelligence. And I would say the difference between it and NVIDIA, NVIDIA had this blowout guidance that said it's going to be making money off of this shift this year. We don't have that yet from ARM. Maybe it will go on the roadshow and say that. But I think it's a harder case. The other thing that I think is interesting, when you think about the valuation of this thing, investors have been very comfortable paying 20-sometimes sales for NVIDIA because they just guided their sales up 75% in the quarter that they just gave. So tomorrow night or Wednesday, after they report and they give their guidance, it'll be very interesting to see how investors react to what is already you know huge expectations, all right? So people are already expecting them to blow out the quarter that they just had guided to in late May, and they're expected to blow out the guidance that 
that they're going to give tomorrow for the current quarter. And if investors are not buying it at that point, at some point they start to price in, is this, this is a 60 some percent gross margin company. Arm, on the other hand, is a much higher gross margin company, but they have much less sales. So if you're telling me this is going to be a 50 or $60 billion, this is where Masa wants this to come. You're talking about a multiple that it doesn't exist in the semiconductor in the public markets right now. So if NVIDIA can't support it in the days to come, and I, again, this I'm not making a prediction about that, then it's going to be really hard for ARM that doesn't have the sort of exposure in this end market right now, I think, to achieve that sort of valuation. Does that make sense to you? Bingo. I think that you laid that out perfectly. Now, the X factor here, which I think is important, we've known and we've seen in the markets this year that hype can gloss over a lot of things. You, you can have an AI strategy, but you don't actually need AI dollars for your stock to go up. So over the next few weeks, as ARM goes on its roadshow, they're going to be picking up, and I know they're already talking to anchor investors, right? If they get an NVIDIA, an Amazon, an Intel, who knows what else, to come on and give them a vote of confidence, that could get retail investors and the broader investing community excited about this company, even though everything you just said about its comparison to NVIDIA and the rest of the chip space is true. The hype cycle could be working over time. Yeah, no doubt. And here's another one. And it's funny because this seems almost like a year or two too late. So you've been reporting on Instacart. Okay. So they're eyeing a September IPO. And it's interesting to me because this was one of those business models that obviously got pulled forward during the pandemic and a lot of their peers were doing well. This has been one of the things that really kept Uber afloat. If you think about it, this was definitely, I think, something that heading prior to the pandemic, a lot of investors were not so excited about the investments they were making in food delivery and the like. And it was something that really buoyed them throughout and they gained a lot of market share. And so I think at the behest of, let's say, some of their smaller competitors here, they made some acquisitions, they bought Postmates and stuff. So what do you think this Instacart thing looks like? Because people, at least tech investors, are much less excited about markets like this that they think are getting a bit saturated. There's a lot of price competition. You know what I mean? The margins are going to get thinner and thinner here because AI is that shiny object right now. And I'm sure a lot of these delivery companies are going to talk about how they're using machine learning and AI and the like, but there's not going to be a real commercialized product in and around them. They might help these companies become more efficient, but they're not going to be something that is going to drop to the bottom line anytime soon. So I just wonder, is this one, it's not going to have the same excitement about an ARM, especially if ARM is able to tell a bit more of an AI story. So it will be exciting in the sense that this is the first sort of larger scale venture backed IPO to go out. I'm so curious to see who are the major stakeholders. What has happened after this 20 month pause in the IPO market is the founder, Arpurva Mehta, who stepped down a few years ago, gave the job to Fiji Simo, Facebook executive. Does he retain control? Who does have control? What does this look like? But you're right. The investment proposition is so much less exciting than it was a few years ago. I remember covering Uber and Lyft so closely and there was just no public comp. So you wondered, where is this thing going to price? And ultimately, it was pretty disappointing. And over the last few years, you said the word afloat. That's exactly the word. In, in the case of Uber, not even Lyft. Lyft is drowning. Uber is afloat. But that's really nothing to be proud of because you've underperformed the NASDAQ, you've underperformed the broader markets, the S&P, and you're just muddling around your IPO price. I get called like an Uber hater. It's not true. I just think that it's remarkable how much money this company has raised and lost over the years. Instacart could be different. I love that. I have not seen the finances and we know very little actually about the finances. We've heard 
that it's profitable, potentially on a net income basis, but how profitable? Even Uber, in some cases, has notched some quarters that are profitable, but it's nothing to write home about. Instacart has this ad business before anyone else did in the gig economy, before Uber and DoorDash, which are now moving into that space because they realize, hey, this is high margin. We have the scale to push these ads out. So that will be interesting. But on the other side, it's facing so much more competition. A few years ago, Instacart was the main game in town if you wanted your groceries delivered. But now everyone's doing it from Uber and DoorDash to the huge, very well capitalized players like Walmart and Target. So the thesis around the company has been weakening a little bit, but I'm very curious. I think in my mind, there's a few different classes of gig economy companies. You've got Uber and Lyft and DoorDash with pretty not great margins. Then you have an Airbnb, which sort of flips all the expectations on its head, just creates this incredible brand, gets to free cash flow, positive net income earnings, and just keeps firing on all cylinders. So we'll see. Yeah, no doubt. And you mentioned Lyft drowning. I know you've spent some time reporting with the new CEO. And and and, and ultimately, I would expect at some point a somewhat new direction. And you think about this, if Instacart is successful, might, and again, I know you disagree with this, but I've mentioned this in the past, Lyft with that like tiny little enterprise value at $4 billion, might that be an interesting piece of a, a puzzle for one of these delivery companies, if you will, that want to better compete with Uber Eats and, and the like here. And, and again, oh, buy versus build and, and, and the like here. But I I don't know. This one to me could seem interesting and it would have to come with a strategic who's willing to bear the brunt if they were going to say it's going to cost us a few billion or whatever it is to build out this sort of delivery capability and have our own sort of fleet, if you will, or at least the technology to enable a fleet of delivery sort of things. I know, I know, I see you. But but Lyft, Lyft has no fleet. Let's be clear here. These are not employees. These are not employed drivers. These are independent contractors who go on their phone and switch between Uber and Lyft and Instacart, whatever is going to give them the better rate. So I don't know what you're It's a buying. platform. I mean, I, I I shouldn't have used the word fleet. It's a platform with a bunch of data. So to me, I totally get it. I understand it. where you're coming from. Yeah. No, <laughs> it's it, got to be worth something to someone. And I, I don't disagree with you there. Dylan and I spent a lot of time talking about NVIDIA, but I just want to, I know this is a company that you know you've reported on for years. It, it, it is literally, it's taken over, if you think, just a lot of the excitement from a lot of these other big stories that have just eaten up so much of the, 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 the space in the room over the last few years years, you know, when you think about Apple was this obsession a few years ago and Tesla has been an obsession. I mean, NVIDIA is 100% like the only thing that any tech investor, that's where they they start and stop on. What do you think? Dan Niles, I know a friend of yours, he was on the pod last week from Saturi Fund and Dan said at the time, I think the stock was trading near kind of 410. It was off its recent highs at 460 or something like that. He said, listen, I'm going to be long in into the print. I will be long much less of it. And and again, he reserves the right not to be involved in it at at all. That point, he basically said that if it does have a run, I I just don't know at that point if it runs into the print. But he said something really interesting to me is if those expectations, which are really high, if they are met and the stock doesn't rally after that, we could be in for a really difficult time. If you think about going back and, and you and I've talked about this to kind of July 18th, 19th, that period where Microsoft introduced the pricing of their co-pilot tools and the like. That was the top for the AI trade 
other than NVIDIA. And even NVIDIA sold off pretty hard. But now in this morning, Tuesday, it made a new all-time high briefly, but it's come off a little bit. So I'm just curious, really from a sentiment standpoint, because I know you have your finger on the pulse out there. Is this as an important event as I think it is and a lot of other investors think it is for this point of the rally of the NASDAQ? It is. I think it's a hugely important point. And let me just give you an anecdote. The markets are talking about NVIDIA, right? And the, the really unique, almost monopoly it has in this AI boom right now. But even on the earliest levels of a business and a company, and a lot of them, of course, are being built right out here in San Francisco and Silicon Valley. I heard this term the other day that I'd never heard before. I don't know if you've heard of it, Dan. Solo capitalist. I think it's another term for like an angel investor, but you know, Silicon Valley updates these things from time to time. The world of investing here in private companies is so competitive. It still is competitive, even though we're going through this VC fundraising winter, that there's investors out there just buying up NVIDIA GPUs. And they go to a startup and they say, I got something better than dollars for you. I got NVIDIA GPUs. And some founders and CEOs, the calculus they're making is to go with the solo capitalist who's going to provide them with the compute power. To me, that's just wild because you're saying that NVIDIA GPUs are worth more than money. It's remarkable to me. So if it really is the only game in town, for now, and even if you think that market share is going to go from 95% or whatever to 80%, if you think that Amazon and others are building their own AI chips, it's a remarkable place to be. And I go back to bring it back to the markets last quarter, right? People were saying the same thing. How can you be buying NVIDIA into this print? It's so expensive already. And then shocker, the day after it reported, its multiple went down because its revenue guidance was so huge. So I don't know. I, I understand the valuation issues. But again, I think I read a headline, is this the new Tesla? People underestimated that Tesla could go as far as it did. I don't know. Dan Niles was talking about a trade, which is harder to time if you're sort of an average investor. NVIDIA on every spectrum that I look at from the private markets to the public markets is a very exciting name to many. Yeah. And I'll just mention this. That it was exciting in late 2021 when they seemed to be involved in almost every major theme, whether it was the metaverse and, and this, and the stock sold off 75% to its lows early this year from those highs. It can happen again. I've been trading it. I've traded it well. It, periods very poorly right now. And I'll probably have a small defined risk short position into the print because I'm probably of the camp that even if they were to give the sort of guidance that they gave last quarter for the current quarter, at some point, a lot of investors are going to expect that competition will come online. There will be pricing pressure on these things. There could be less demand also. And so to me, I also think the China double and triple ordering, I think these bands are going to get tightened up a little bit, these tech bands out of Washington. And I think that at some point, you're going to start discounting that a little bit. But again, that's what makes a market. All right, Debo, I really that's appreciate you. I love you. talking to you, Dan, because you almost make me change my mind. I'll no. say something and then you'll provide such a good counter to it. I'm like, huh, maybe I'll change my mind on that. I, I, I like your thought process too. And I think one of the most important things, and I say this about trading all the time, is if you're going to take a directional view on something, you better understand how it could go wrong. And so one of the reasons why I really enjoy this, and I hope our listeners enjoy it as much as I do, is you are so well-sourced. You've been covering this these spaces for so long here, and you're you're not thinking about it through a trader lens. You're thinking about it through someone who's trying to get to the bottom of what's going on and then layer in the sentiment. So Deirdre Bosa, I really appreciate you coming on OK Computer again. I hope to see you again next week. As always. Thank you, Dan.
Hey, listeners, it's Dan here. I want to tell you about a company that I'm really excited about. It's called Current. It's a fintech company that's completely disrupting traditional banking. I'm a new Current customer. It's already helping me and my entire family manage our finances, all from one easy-to-use app. So try Current for yourself and get the app by going to Current.com slash OK. That's Current.com slash OK. Current is a financial technology company, not a bank. Banking services provided by Choice Financial Group, member FDIC, and Cross River Bank, member FDIC. With CME Group's micro-sized futures and options, you can access the same transparency and liquidity of the benchmark contracts with less upfront financial commitment. Diversify your portfolio and manage your exposure with the flexibility of CME Group micro-contracts in crypto, metals, FX, energy, and equity indices. Learn more about what adding futures can do for you at cmegroup.com slash micros. Welcome back. I'm here with Dylan Patel. He is the chief analyst at Semi Analysis. Dylan, welcome to the pod. Thank you for having me. You and I had a great conversation. We were introduced by a friend of the pod and loyal listener. That would be Peter Bookvar of Bleakly Advisors, who was also on our Friday edition of On the Tape that dropped last week. So check that out, people. But he introduced us because he's like, listen, you guys spend a lot of time talking about semis. You talk a lot of time talking about tech. You've been bitching and moaning about the move. And NVIDIA, he said, I got a guy for you. And that was you. And you and I had a great conversation. I learned a lot. This was a couple months ago. We were trying to find a good opportunity to get you on the pod. I couldn't think of a better reason than this week because we know Wednesday after the close, NVIDIA is going to report. You had a great report out on semi-analysis as thinking about the quarter and the sort of guidance that they might give. And we're going to get to all that. But I'd love for you, Dylan, to tell our listener a little bit about your background and semi-analysis. Sure. So I come from a data science background. And unlike many of the guests here, we're not an investment advisor or investor ourselves. We're supply chain analysts, technology analysts. So semi-analysis, we're based in the U.S., but we're in Singapore, Taiwan, and Japan as well. And we cover the semiconductor supply chain at a very deep level, as well as AI and, and models and how much infrastructure, build-outs, what's needed, equipment, supply chain, all of this stuff downstream. You made the point of saying that you're not an investment house. You're not doing market analysis. You're doing analysis of the, actually the tech and the supply chains and the like here. Who are your clients? Who relies on the research that you guys do? So we have clients that do direct work with us, and that includes some folks on the investment side, private equity, as well as venture and public market investors, but a lot of semiconductor and AI firms as well. And then we have our research product that is subscribed to by people across the supply chain, right? Whether it's vendors, whether it's AI chip companies, whether it's users, investors, again. So we have a sort of a broader base, but it's not a specifically a product targeted to investors, although it, is, it does have valuable information. So when you think about the last few years, probably as long as that you've been covering this sector and the supply chains related to these kind of end markets here, it's probably been as about a complicated a situation as you can have with the global pandemic, the initial panic of all the fabs going down and people not knowing when they would be able to reopen and then the shipping and the list goes on and on. And then just some of the issues that you had with some countries taking much different measures, let's say China, than some other countries like the US, which opened much sooner. There's a lot of weird stuff. But then one thing I think a lot of companies that were domiciled here realized specifically, let's say in the auto industry or something, is like the idea that we are so dependent on the supply chains that have been built over decades over there is, is a real problem going forward. So I just want to get a sense, like heading into this year, it was a really 
really unique situation because we had, again, the panic about no demand, then the panic of double, triple, quadruple demand as we got out of 2020 into 2021. We saw inflationary pressures in all different ways in, from manufacturing to the equipment to the shipping. The list goes on and on. And then last year, at least through the lens of the public markets though, Dylan, it looked like there was definitely a moderating of all of those themes, really getting ready for a softer environment. And then bang, Chat GBT4 comes out late last year, and it's just a, a massive hit. It seemed to just turn the narrative on tech in general in 2023. Talk to me a little bit about what that felt like in your seat, contemplating everything that's happened over the last few years, and how did that sort of change the narrative, at least in the areas that you follow in semis and supply chain? It's super interesting because some of our clients were trying to get out of some long-term supply agreements that they had penned into that weren't maybe the wording for some of them were super firm. Some of them were trying to determine if they should wait to purchase things that they need in two quarters from now when they had been told, hey, you need to have a year of supply. Maybe I should wait because prices are tanking, right? So we were doing a lot of work around that sort of stuff. And then I was at NeurIPS in New Orleans in November of last year, which is where ChatGPT was released. This is an AI research conference. And day one was covered by Meta had released this new model, which was able to trick humans. And it was really interesting. And then no one cared about it the next day because the next day, literally everyone and anyone, all they could talk about was ChatGPT. And this was in late November. And as infrastructure, journalists like immediately tried to figure out how, how does the inference of large language models work? So we started doing work on that in November of last year and releasing stuff and training costs in December and inference costs in January. How much hardware does it require for users, for how many queries people put, how many words people use out of ChatGPT and such. And and since then, it's just been a flurry of, hey, sure, everywhere else is oversupplied, but let's focus on what's tight and, and who's tight. Because you also see this in the market, right, is every company is claiming they're an AI winner. And, and to the point where some of these companies have insignificant business from AI, and yet they still claim that they're going to have huge wins in AI. When you try and stack up their business, actually, they have less content in an AI server than they have in a regular server. It's really interesting to see what people are saying and trying to come up with. That's a great point. In your latest note, we're going to get to it. You're calling them kind of AI head fakes. And I thought that was interesting as you think about some of the results and some of the guidance that you've seen. Let, let's talk a little bit about what you took away from Q2 guidance. Taiwan Semi, I guess, most importantly, and the biggest headline for me, and this was maybe almost a month ago now, they were just talking about all the demand for these high-end graphics chips that are being used to train these large language models and general AI models is not making up for the slack that they're seeing in other end markets, okay? So that was, to me, the, the, the main sort of headline. And then you saw a lot of the results that looked like, as you call them, AI head fakes. Because again, it was rising tides lifting all boats. And it's truly astounding when you just think about since NVIDIA gave that guidance for that, that May quarter, the stock had gained hundreds of billions of dollars in market cap, and it just ripped everything up with it. It ripped the NASDAQ up with it. So I'm just curious, like, when when you started getting some of that guidance, what was your thought here? Because this was mid-July. It happened to be the top of the NASDAQ too, if you will. It seemed like there was a lot of enthusiasm, at least in the public markets, about what was going to happen here. And that's since abated a little bit. So there's been quite the shakeup in the supply chain, right? When you think about, hey, I'm Microsoft and I was going to spend, call it $15 billion on servers. Now my plan is call it 18 or 20. But my mix is very much shifted. And when I shift that mix, it changes the entire supply chain, right? What I used to would have spent 15 billion on, now I'm may, may, maybe only spelling 10. And that growth to 17 to 20 is now all on AI servers. So in fact, there's an entire legacy supply chain that is tanking in sales. And then 
when you look at the AI supply chain, there's call it two or three companies that are taking all of the premium there, right? You know, NVIDIA, of course, being number one, but there's other companies like Broadcom who also have similarly insane gross margins for their data center networking product at above 70%. And they're just sucking all the wind out of the supply chain. And then there's a whole host of companies that are like, yeah, we sell chips for this and this, but it's like, hey, the chip that was in a $20,000 normal CPU server also happens to be the exact same chip in a $200,000, $300,000 AI server. So actually, yes, I am selling there, but if my number of $20,000 servers I'm selling, it, it goes way down in the number of $250,000 AI servers. Yes, it goes up, but not enough to make up for the huge decrease in volume for the standard CPU servers. You end up with, actually, they're a loser. But many companies, whether it's because they want to tell investors certain things or supply chain certain things or because they truly believe in they don't get it. They're, they're saying that they're selling so much there, right? And, and, and in some examples, you, you even saw this come to fruition in, in TSMC's last earnings, right? Where, yes, TSMC is, is making all of NVIDIA's chips for them. And not only are they making just the chips, they're actually putting them together with memory, which is not common for most chips in the supply chain. When you look at a CPU, they'll make a CPU and then they'll ship it to someone else who will connect it to the memory. With AI chips, TSMC is actually connecting the memory to the AI chip itself because the, the technology required for it, right? bandwidth and all this. And so people were like, why aren't you making so much money from this? One, you know, an analyst on the call was even like, hey, your customer's making these huge gross margins way above all your other customers. Why don't you charge them more? You can. And they're like, we're, they're our partner. We can't just charge them more. So it was quite funny that this all came to fruition in the earnings call that TSMC had maybe a couple months ago where people were like, you should raise the price on NVIDIA. And TSMC is like, no. Before we get to NVIDIA and, and what you're expecting as far as the guidance going forward, and I think that's probably the main event here. If you think about some of these other end markets, though, PCs and smartphones and, and some of the stuff in industrial and auto, it, it just wasn't good. It, Qualcomm was an absolute disaster. Intel and AMD were slightly disappointing. Texas Instruments was disappointing. So talk to me a little bit about the landscape right now, and maybe talk a little bit about what you're seeing out of China, because a lot of the economic data that we're seeing. It's obviously screams deflationary. If we think back, there was these two competing narratives actually in January and early February that really, in my opinion, got the NASDAQ going early this year after a pretty nasty 2022 that was down more than 30%. It was that the about face on zero COVID out of China and then chat GBT and the unknown about what commercializing these products and, and what they would mean. And it's funny because here we are, we're in late August here. And I think the China trade is a dud. It's a flat out dead bang loser. And it might have massive implications for the global economy. And then the other one, at least that I think has, has powered a lot of the year-to-date gains in the S&P 500 and the NASDAQ has been AI. And if we just want to take stock of what we've heard over the last month since Q2 earnings, it hasn't been great. And to your point, you were just talking about the semiconductors, but Microsoft's a great example. They're paying double maybe two and a half X the time for some of these graphics you know, units to go into these supercomputers to train these models, but they might not be ordering a whole heck of a lot of the other stuff that they were before. And they're paying a lot more and they're not getting any revenue right now for right this, the stuff they're building. So I think there's this narrative across all of tech that could be really pretty nasty at a time where we just came off peak gross margins for no shortage of businesses over the last year or two or so. So talk to me a little bit about that. Obviously, everyone made the most money they ever made in the supply chain, irrespective of who they were in 21 and 22. And it was moderating demand very much slowed down in late 22. And the markets front ran it in early 22. But as you mentioned, in the beginning of the year, everyone was excited about China reopening. If you look at the data in China, smartphone sales are just horrendous. They're down 20% globally. But when you look at just China, they're down even more. 
right? And then when you look at PC sales, same thing happened, right? The consumer is not purchasing, which has historically been one of the biggest demands of semiconductors. First, it was mainframes and stuff like that. But then the next wave was PCs and the wave after that was smartphones, right? And both of those waves are secularly declining in volume because you can keep your phone and PC for longer and longer and longer, right? And so those areas are, are looking tremendously weak and there's no rebound to come. When you look at places like automotive, yeah, now a lot of companies in the supply chain have built up a stock of a year or more. And yes, they're increasing production and prices of cars are falling. But the consumer is weak again, right? Interest rates are so high that you can't purchase more cars. So that's going to that's gonna lead to some uh, weakness there as well. So when you look across the supply chain, everywhere it looks bad except AI. And then when you look at AI, there's these head fakes, right? Everyone talks about, oh, hey, NVIDIA is going to make absurd revenue. And we agree. And actually, we're probably well ahead of what other people believe and have been for most of the year based on what we see in the supply chain. But the other thing that people need to recognize is there are certain companies like Supermicro, right? That company has shot up 300% this year or had uh, before their earnings. And it, why? Because they were a company that makes servers, that integrates GPUs. They're pretty good at it relative to the Dells, the Lenovo's and HP's of the world, which are the three biggest server manufacturers in the world. They're actually pretty good at it. But their revenue guidance is pretty much flat, right? Why is that? Because there is a supply chain and the lag that people don't quite understand is a lot of the people who are piling into AI come from the software world where things switch on a dime. Revenue literally inflects quarter. NVIDIA, the moment they put in a chip order, even if TSMC starts working on it then and then it goes through their entire supply chain, is going to take about six to eight months, right, to get to the end customer. And when does Supermicro make the revenue? They make their revenue maybe month five or six of that supply chain. NVIDIA, when do they make their revenue? The fourth month of the supply chain. Uh, from so, so, so the supply chain takes a really long time to come through. And so yeah, NVIDIA sold graphics cards, call it last month, and Supermicro doesn't recognize that revenue until because of the difference in financial years until potentially as much as next January earnings call. That's when they would be, be able to actually tell the investor, hey, this is what we made. And actually, it was a big increase. Um, but until then, the GPUs that, that they're recording on their earnings today are actually ones that were sold five, six months ago, which is before the chat GPT demand could really skyrocket in terms of actual sales because the supply chain is just... It's hardware. It's not software. Let's talk about NVIDIA, though. So today, it's Monday afternoon. The stock is up 8%. Okay, so I just want to do some really quick math here. Up 8%. It's up $80 billion in market cap today because investors are nervous. It's probably shorts covering a little bit. Investors are nervous to the point that you're saying is that this whisper number has been moving higher on the buy side as far as revenues are concerned. And so when I think about this, analysts have been tripping over each other over the last week. I think there's 10 or so they've been raising their price target, raising the rest of it into the quarter. The stock now is, I don't know, I want to say a couple percent away from its all-time highs, all right, which was just made last month or so. The implied move in the options market, one-day move post-earnings, Dylan, is 10% in either direction. So just think about that. That's like $100 billion. I just want to be really clear about something. Intel's market cap is $137 billion. Okay, so think about that. That's what the market is expecting in movement the day after NVIDIA's earnings. So tell me something, and I'm not asking you to put your stock market cap on because that's not what you do. But when you think about the guidance that they gave for the quarter they're going to report on Wednesday, initially, I think consensus was about $7 billion. They guided to $11 billion. And if you look at what happened to consensus for the balance of the year, consensus is basically for $12 billion a quarter in revenue for NVIDIA for the next few 
two quarters, okay? And now the whisper estimate, though, has been moving up. I think a lot of folks expecting $14 billion for this next quarter. You expect more than that. Talk to me about what you're seeing, and I'm not going to ask you what you think about the stock. What do you think investors should expect based on the guidance they gave last quarter, given your channel checks that you're doing right now? And does it have this sort of runway of a few quarters, or is there some element of Chinese double and triple ordering before further curbs go in place? And is this sustainable? Because the thing about the stock market is the moment that it doesn't think or investors don't think it's sustainable, even if there's another quarter or two like we've seen, that's when the stock turns and it turns really hard. Yeah, so I think there's a few things to unpack there. Four months ago, our supply chain analysis from the perspective of production, how is TSMC increasing production, specifically this one product called Kowos, uh, C-O-W-O-S. We analyzed that supply chain heavily and the equipment manufacturers and all that and saw that they were going to increase production by, you know, a certain amount. And I won't get to the numbers, but that roughly implied that NVIDIA was going to make about $60 billion of revenue next year off of their data center AI chip. As we've come closer and closer through the year, and this is on our site as well, those numbers keep moving up, right? Of course, a little bit. But really in the last two weeks, the sort of investor community, at least the banks, woke up and realized, wait, just because NVIDIA's guidance was $11 billion doesn't mean the next quarter is going to be 12 actually. If you look at the supply side, from notes like myself, as well as editors out there, they're actually going to do significantly more in the next quarter, right? Not $12 billion of revenue and 11 this one, more like 12 this quarter and 14 to 15 the quarter after that, just based on supply and how that's increasing. And for the next two quarters, it is totally a supply game. How much supply can NVIDIA get? Because they are going to sell everything for the next two quarters through the end of the fiscal year, right? So call it January, which is when they would report it. February, which is when they report every single unit they produce, they will sell. Now, the real question is long-term demand and how sustainable it is. is it? So there's a couple of factors there. One is China, as you mentioned, right? Today, China is roughly 30, 35% of the AI chips NVIDIA sells. Now, the government put down these bans in November of last year. The way they were intentioned, NVIDIA should not be able to sell these chips. But the way the rules were written, NVIDIA was able to derate one small aspect of the chip while maintaining pretty much the same performance continue to ship to China, which kind of violates the spirit of sanctions. But of course, the government just didn't write it well. NVIDIA continues to sell hand over fist. And I think part of it is, yeah, of course, China is going to try and get as many they can into the door before bans come down. Because as far back as even five, six months ago, Reuters and Bloomberg were saying that there's more bans coming. We haven't seen them yet, but it's, it seems pretty clear the government realized it wasn't effective on the AI chip. So there's one aspect, which is the China demand, right? If you say 30, 35% chip sales are to China, which in general, even when China isn't double ordering, has been the case. You look at even three, four years ago, 30, 35% of sales were to China. So I, I don't think that's too far of an anomaly. It's just that everyone in the supply chain is double ordering, right? And, and what's the state sustainability? And in some cases, it's OpenAI could probably go out to the market and raise $100 billion. I think that's truly what they could do, build some crazy super. And I truly do think that the world would supply that. But there's a long laundry list of people on the venture side, startup side, that are spending money and they're never going to make their money back. Google, obviously, they're spending a lot of money, not on not as much on video GPUs, more so on their own chips, which are bought through Broadcom. So stay tuned. We have a very deep supply chain analysis coming. They're going to obviously make their money back on them. Whether you think of their search or not, they're pretty effective in general, right? Meta is the third most highest and the second biggest buyer of GPUs in everyone's mind, if you model it out, right? Including next year, right? Question is, does Meta continue to spend at this rate? 
In fact, in the big first half of the year, they were the biggest purchaser of GPUs. So do they continue to spend at this rate? And the question is for their recommendation models to keep you on Instagram for 10 seconds longer and doing one more ad. Great. Yes, these GPUs make a lot of sense. That's one kind of model architecture. They're called DLRMs. But then there's the model architecture that everyone is freaking out about, which is language models, right? Generative. And how does Meta monetize? No one has any clue, right? Because an Instagram chatbot is not going to make them money. And the average Meta user, Instagram and Facebook user is not going to pay X dollars a month for them. So the question is, how do they monetize that? No one is sure. But then the flip side of the, and so does that mean they have to stop spending on this at some point? Well, you could argue, but then you could also flip the hat and say, hey, currently Meta is actually spending $15 billion a year on Metaverse graph. And I have no clue when that's going to be monetized. Actually, if you look at the most recent times, it was like, yeah, 2027 is when we think we might generate significant revenue and such from, okay, they're going to spend $15 billion a year for another five years. And that's just like lighting it on fire effectively, right? Can they not do $20 billion with generative AI? Actually, they're profitable enough that they could. And, and it all hinges off of one man's beliefs because he has all the voting control over the company. So Meta could easily spend $20 million a year. And you go down the list, it's like, it's an existential threat for many large companies. I do Tencent, Alibaba will spend as much as they can, as long as the government allows them to. Microsoft and Meta and Google will spend as much as, as long as they view this as an existential threat, right? But then there's other companies. Amazon owns the most servers in the world. They have the most servers installed in data centers in the world. And yet their spending has been pretty moderate. In fact, if you look at their most recent call trend projected out, it's, no, they're being pretty tame about it. They're waiting for the demand. Part of this is what I've dubbed as the Amazon cloud crisis. But part of this, and, and, and that's a pretty deep report, and most of it is free, actually. But there, there's also the aspect of they don't actually have an application, right? They have customers who rent from them. They're, they're going to rent a big chunk, CTOs, CIOs. They're going to they're gonna rush to do something. But at the same time, they're going to be like, are we actually going to make any money off of this, these general enterprises? The fact of the matter is, is most of these companies are not going to be able to monetize their own large language. They're going to have to use a service that's developed by a company. And those services are still far away, right? Copilot, for example, for Microsoft, being the first big service that enterprises want to use, is still many months away from launching. Is that actually going to be successful? And if it is, then that drives more GPU demand. But if it's not, is there not a cliff? China demand tanks because there's more bands. All these companies have been spending. There's still no monetization, really. So that takes, right? There's an opportunity for a clip and demand. Yeah, I think that the market sniffs that out probably in the not so distant future. And if it's it's not just some coincidence that the NASDAQ topped out the week that Microsoft introduced the pricing of their co-pilot services. And when you think about if you're like an analyst, an investment analyst, you think about, okay, what's the potential demand for this? What's the potential margin based on other products? How much did they spend to get this compute? Like how much will they need to continue to spend? And I think they just pulled forward a lot of demand. And, and I just tell you this, until there are some commercial applications, and the example that you gave with Amazon, because it's their AWS customers who are going to drive right demand for those services, they may wait and see what is commercialized and then add in the, the sort of compute. By that point, there might be a lot more supply on, online. AMD might come online. A whole host of other suppliers might have products that are cheaper and, and the like here at a time where there's less demand and less price gouging and less double and triple ordering. So I guess to me, I had Dan Niles of Satori Fund last week on the pod, and he said to me, listen, I'm long this stock. And for a lot of the reasons that you just mentioned in the near term, he's like, I may not be long a lot of it into the print because at some point there's going to be a situation where there's a handful of companies like Tesla needed to be buying these chips. They need to sell more cars, right? Because they need to keep selling the dream of full self-driving. And Google and Microsoft, they're in this existential war, if you think about it, between OpenAI 
Spotify and Bard, but there's not a lot of other companies that see a path to commercializing products right now. And so to me, I think there is a risk in the next quarter or so. And Dan's point was that let's say that uh, NVIDIA guides up and they beat this current quarter and they guide up material. If the stock doesn't rally, it's lights out because at that point, investors have just discounted a lot of the near-term good news and we have that cliff. And the last thing I'll just remind you is that, and I'm not reminding you, I'm just saying the point in which Meta cut back on all of this spend as it relates to the metaverse, the stock had already dropped 70% from the time in which Mark Zuckerberg, that, that voting control guy, remember the one you just mentioned, you know what I mean? Changed the name of the company, changed the direction of the company, said they were reorienting the whole vision of it. And so it's just interesting to me that in NVIDIA, Tesla, Netflix, Meta, a bunch of the, the most loved technology companies in the NASDAQ from their highs in late 2021 lost 75% of their value and they could do it again. And this setup to me is a very dangerous one if you think about all the excitement in and around what's gone on over the last few months. I want to leave you with one major thought about the supply chain, which is how many GPUs are actually going out there? If we go back to last year, Roughly 600,000 of the highest end GPUs sold, these data center class GPUs called the A100. Right now, NVIDIA is transitioning from that last generation to current generation. This year, the number is more like million, a little bit above actually, in my estimate. If you go by consensus, maybe it's like a million. And then also there's the fact that they released a new generation, which is three times faster, give it or take. Next year, the supply chain is talking about two to three million GPUs, right? And then by then, all, pretty much all the GPUs will be the one that's three times faster. So last year, 600,000 versus next year, two to three million that are three times faster, you're looking at literally 10x more GPU shipping in terms of compute performance, right? Now, now that is a whole lot of capabilities. You talk to AI researchers and, or OpenAI or really anyone who's been using GPUs to train these models. What they've done it with in the past and what they're going to be able to do it with by the end of next year is absolutely absurd. A 10x increase in the total compute performance. So, there's going to be a whole lot of development in the model world, but also there's going to be a whole lot of, hey, we just continue to do what we do or figure out how to monetize what we develop in 2021, right? GPT-4 was trained in 2021 and co-pilot with GPT-4 might finally come out at the end of this year. Next year type frame, you're looking at, wow, we have 10x more GPUs. Is there actually demand for 10x more GPUs is the question. I appreciate your deep fundamental analysis. To me, this is just a stock market hot take. I think it's setting up as an epic disaster as far as the excitement in and around all this in, in the near term and just how it's translated into market cap and what it's done for the broad NASDAQ, if you will. But listen, Dylan Patel, you made me a lot smarter. I really appreciate you coming on OK Computer and I hope you'll come back. So I appreciate it. Thanks. Awesome. Thank you for having me. If you like what you heard, make sure to hit follow and leave us a review. It helps other people find the show. We also want to hear from you. Email us at contact at riskreversal.com.